Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel according to John. John chapter 19. John chapter 19 will begin in verse 25. And we are grateful today for all of our mothers and for those who are like mothers to us, those who have invested in our lives to help mold and shape us and continue to love us today. And so we give thanks to God for each of you. John chapter 19. Beginning of verse 25, the scene is Jesus from the cross. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. It's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your holy word and for the privilege of studying it together. And now as I stand before these, your people, I pray that this would be your message and not my own, through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Six hours is a long time to be on a cross. Now, some people have been known to hang on crosses for days, and maybe even a week at a time, but Jesus, we know, was on the cross for about six hours. According to Mark, he's placed on the cross at 9 a.m., and it's 3 p.m. that afternoon when he dies. Six hours. Makes you wonder what Jesus is thinking during those six hours when you're enduring the pain and, and going through it. And he looks down and, and there's his aunt. And there's Mary and there's Mary Magdalene. And then we're told in John that he makes eye contact with his mom. When he sees his mom, they look at each other. And it just makes me wonder if immediately then Jesus began having some of those reflections about growing up with Mary, with Mary. Mom, there's my mom. You know, there are some things that a mom should never have to see. And, and Mary's now experiencing one of those things that no mom should have to go through. And, and she's such a special person. I mean, sometimes I think we Protestants try to shear away from talking too much about Mary, but that's a, it's a tragic thing, actually, because of all the people in the world that God could have chosen, of all the ladies in Israel that God could have chosen, He chose Mary to be the mother of God, to be the mother of His child. What was it about Mary? She had an amazing heart, an amazing love, and, and sometimes we forget, too, that, that Jesus was fully human and fully divine, but we we have a hard time seeing that human side of Jesus. I mean, this, this morning, I was talking with Pastor OCO, Pastor Meredith, and, and we were talking about their little ones and, and the realization that, you know, Jesus was one time each of their sizes. I just did a baptism at the 1010 service at a beautiful family with three staggered little boys. And at one point, Jesus was each of their ages. And, and you just kind of picture Mary holding her little boy Jesus in her arms. 
We don't have a lot of the stories, but don't you imagine she would hold him on her lap and, and stroke his hair like we do our kids and, and tell him stories like, you know, you, before you were born, an angel came to me and said that I was going to have you. An angel? Yes. An angel came and told me that, that I was about to have this special little boy and now I've got you. And did you know that, that, that before you were born too, an angel went to your dad and, and told your dad that, that we were about to have this little boy and, and the angel even said, God wants you to name him Jesus. That's how you got your name. God gave you your name. It means, it means he will save. And don't you imagine on Jesus' birthday, periodically, Mary would be holding you know, the little boy, Jesus, and go, you know, when you were born, we went to Bethlehem and it was so crowded. You know where you were born? I was born in a barn. I mean, don't you just imagine those kind of stories occurred? That I, you know, I was born in a barn. Yeah. And did you know that your first baby bed was actually the manger? Was there a cow there? Yes, there was a cow there. Was there a donkey there? Yes, there was a donkey there. Did it make noise? Yeah, it made noise. I mean, don't you know that, that they shared all those, those special, intimate stories? I wonder what it was like for Jesus growing up. I mean, we know that, that Mary and Joseph were very poor. We learned that in Luke because the, the scripture tells that at his dedication in Luke 2, that Mary and Joseph offered pigeons as their, their sacrifice or their offering. And, and the normal offering would have been a lamb, but the scripture gives the provision that if a family is too poor to buy a lamb for the offering, then, then the family could offer two pigeons. They offered the birds. They were poor. You know what that means? It means that, that, that Jesus grew up struggling a little bit. Luke, in, in the Gospel according to Luke, shares with us that, that Jesus has this affinity for the poor, the outcasts, the marginalized, those who are hurting. And, and, and maybe one of the reasons is Jesus was one of them. Jesus grew up poor. Some of us may not know exactly what that's like, but, but I know that my mom and my dad both grew up poor. And I remember my dad working so hard. And, and every year as school would get ready to start back, we would get a new pair of jeans and we'd get a new pair of tennis shoes. And that was a big deal for us. We didn't realize that, that other kids got jeans and tennis shoes whenever they wanted them. We just knew that in the fall when school was getting ready to start back, you got your new jeans and you got your new tennis shoes. And my dad worked. 70 and 80 hours a week to make sure that we had everything that we could have. And his statement was this, I don't want anybody making fun of my kids like they made fun of me when I was a kid for being poor. So Jesus grew up with that. Jesus grew up as the poor kid. And, and just imagine, you know, Joseph working so hard as a carpenter to build things, to sell them, to provide for his family, and Mary trying to provide the home. And one of the things that the mother was responsible for in biblical times was teaching the faith. Can't you imagine Mary holding the little boy Jesus or sitting at the table with just a little lamp and talking to him about all the stories of the faith so that he would grow up? with a faith in this God and a relationship in this, with this God and helping with the homework and 
doing all those things and bandaging the skin, knees, and, and even refereeing arguments with the kids. That's one of the things we parents do. If you don't give your mother credit for anything else, give her credit for being one more referee. Because just imagine, I mean, what it would be like. Jesus had little brothers and sisters. We know that. It's in the scripture that he had brothers and sisters. And, and can you imagine, I love Mark Lowry, the Christian comedian and singer, who goes, can you imagine how tough it was to be Jesus' little brother or sister and be here, and why can't you be more like your brother? <laughs> Mom having to deal with that. Jesus coming home crying because something some kid said or did to him. I mean, he was a little boy. We forget he was fully human and fully divine. And he had a mom who loved her son. The scripture says that Mary would ponder these things in her heart. She was so faithful to God as well. She and Joseph had Jesus dedicated in the temple when he was just a little boy. And, and the scripture says that every year, every year, Mary and Joseph would take Jesus and the kids into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover every year. It wasn't, are we going to, but every year they did. They were so faithful in their commitment to God. And, and then when Jesus grows up, the scripture says that he went into the temple and he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He grew up with, with, a, with parents who loved him enough to raise him in the faith, to raise him in the temple, to raise him with the community of faith. They took seriously what it meant to worship God and be dedicated to God. And, and they watched Jesus grow up and they watched him becoming so mature and taking his faith for himself. You might remember when Jesus was 12 and they go to the temple for the Passover. Remember the story of how Mary and Joseph then leave Jerusalem and, and Mary assumes that Joseph's got Jesus and Jesus assumes Mary's got Jesus and and, and they're, they're now a good journey away from Jerusalem when they realize we left Jesus. This is one place where Jesus and I kind of relate to each other because we were picking with my mother about this just at Easter because the same thing happened to me one Sunday when I was a little boy. Mom thought I rode home from church with Dad. Dad thought I rode home from church with Mom. And, and they get to the house, there was mom and dad, there was the five of us kids, there was my grandmother, my great uncle, and typically there were other people at the house, so they didn't miss me until they sat down to eat. <laughs> and they start going, one, two, three, one, two. And they realized I wasn't there, and, and I barely remember it, but they said that, you know, when they drove back and approached the church, that I was sitting on the front steps of the church. Oh, I've gotten so much mileage out of being the forgotten child. <laughs> Don't you imagine Jesus might have done that to Mary and Joseph once in a while, going like the time you left me at the temple? I love the story, though, because when they realize that they've forgotten Jesus, horror strikes. Have you ever turned around and lost sight of your child just for a moment? And that panic and fear that you have of, oh, no. And then to realize that you've already journeyed away. And can you imagine how long it must have felt to take to get back to Jerusalem to try to find Jesus who's now somewhere in this city? Can you imagine the panic? And, and that's why Luke tells us the story that, that when they get there, you know the first thing that happened was the embrace. Oh, there you are. But then we're told in, in Luke 2, the end of the chapter, that it's Mary, it's mom 
who then says, boy, you had your mama, you had your father and me worried to death. I mean, I just love that because, you know, Jesus got in trouble. <laughs> boy, you had us worried sick. But what you really heard was a mom going, I, I can't imagine life without you. I can't imagine. What would have happened if I if I'd lost you? Oh, no wonder, no wonder God picked Mary. The last time we hear about Joseph is when Jesus is 12. Most scholars believe that sometime when Jesus was a teenager, Joseph dies. Most argue that that's as well why Jesus didn't begin his ministry until he was 30 years of age because when the father would die, the oldest son takes on some of the responsibility for the family and since there were younger brothers and sisters, Jesus would then have had to work as a carpenter and seek to help provide for his family and make a way for his family until his brothers and sisters got old enough that then Jesus could go out and do his own thing and that's why he begins his ministry around 30, 30 years old. Because Jesus understood the value of family. Family was, was so important. Then when Jesus begins his miracle, his, his ministry rather, that very first miracle, remember it was Mary that was there with him at the miracle? Some, some have argued that Mary spent about 90% of Jesus' life with him. We don't really know that because there's so much of a blank of Jesus' life that we don't know a lot about. But Mary just seems to be there. She's there at the beginning of his ministry. She's there at the cross. The very first miracle there at Cana of Galilee is just above Nazareth. And, and it must have been somebody associated with the family because Mary seems to have some sense of obligation for what's happening. And, and all of a sudden they're having this big wedding celebration and, and, and they're out of wine. And, and, and Mary comes up to Jesus going, we got a problem. We got, oh, we got a problem. They're running out of wine. They're out of wine. This is going to be so embarrassing. Jesus, you need to do something. After they have an exchange and a conversation, you remember what Jesus did? Remember how he turned the water to wine? And the wedding director is so impressed because this wine is so much better than the first wine. And don't you imagine that at some point during the rest of the wedding that Mary made eye contact with Jesus and whispered, And I can just picture Jesus with a smile beginning to come across his face and a twinkle in his eye because he had done something for his mom. He had done something for his mom. You know, Mary was with him all the way to the end. One of the last things that Jesus saw before he died was his mom. He's there on the cross and he looks down and, and there's mom. And one of the most intimate things occurs and that's that Mary, Jesus looks down and he sees John beside of Mary and he, and he says, Mom, John will take care of you. And then he looks over at John and he goes, John, take care of my mom. And we're told that from that point on, he took her to his home. That's what the scripture says if we put it in today's language. That's exactly what he said, his mom John will take care of you. Because as the oldest son, Jesus' responsibility was, was to be there for his mother and to help make sure his mom was okay. And so right before he dies and he's not going to be able to carry that out any longer, he makes sure she's still taken care of. Mom, John will take care of you. John, take care of my mom. 
I mean, what an intimate moment right there from the cross. The relationship between mother and son was, was that powerful right there from the cross to the point that we know that Mary stayed involved with the ministry in the early church even after Jesus had ascended into heaven. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, the scripture says that and all of these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Wow. That relationship between Jesus and his mom was so important. Family's important to us. It's not perfect, but it's important. When God created in Genesis 1 and 2, he said it was good, but there was something missing. When God created Adam, and, and Adam is that Hebrew word, Adam, which means human being. When God created the human being, he realized, you know, it's not good for the human being to be alone. He needs someone. So God created the animals, the birds of the air, the animals of the field, and still something was missing. And, and, and God said, you know, he needs another person. And so he created Eve, and, and now you have the family unit being formed. There's Adam and Eve, and, and they have two children, Cain and Abel. And what a beautiful picture. Everything looks so great. You know, here is the family. But wow, it didn't last long because pretty soon Cain kills his brother Abel. And the first mother has, has the horrible task of burying one son who had been killed at the hands of her other son. Family's important to us, but it's not perfect. Sometimes we, we, we get frustrated that our families are not perfect, but, but even the first family wasn't perfect. Why do we think yours is going to be? Or mine is going to be? Family can be challenging. This afternoon, we're going to get together with our family from, from my mother and father down. Now, there's about 40 of us. Keep us in your prayers. It's going to be rainy. That makes you tight. You know, they say you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. It is what it is. And sometimes we get frustrated because moms are not perfect, and, 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 and we struggle with that. But mothers are human too, and sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we have unrealistic expectations. But the challenge is, is God puts special people in our lives not perfect people in our lives. We forget that, that God puts special people in our lives, but not necessarily perfect people in our lives. Some moms really struggle. There are, there are some that struggle with brokenness. There are some that struggle with things that have happened in their lives. There are some that just may not have the ability to be everything that, that their family may need them to be. And, and, and yet the scripture says to honor your father and your mother. How do you do that? And and the challenge is that, that honoring your father and your mother does not mean that you always agree with them, and it does not mean that you become an enabler for them, but it means that you love them anyway. It means we love them anyway. I mean, it's one of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 when, when God creates the Ten Commandments for us. The first four deal with our relationship with God. You'll have no other gods, no idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath holy. But then the remaining six are about how we love each other. And the very first one of those is to honor your father and your mother. It's the only one with a promise, too. Paul quotes that in Ephesians 6. It goes, so that it may be well with you. So that it may be well with you. It doesn't mean that you have perfect people, but you have special people. And when Jesus saw his mother, it moved him. It moved him. Mother's Day is a special day. Yesterday, 
I had a great time with some different couples in our church, you know, uh, and, and in our life because, well, last night I did a wedding, and I love doing weddings with couples because I get to know them well, and, and I get to spend some time with them, and, and when the bride choked up during her vows last night, it was like, because then I felt the knot come in my throat because I've learned to love these people and care about these people, and it's like, if you lose it, they're done, you know, and you're trying to hold on to it, and, and, and you're sharing in this intimate moment in their lives, and, and then yesterday morning, Nancy and I invited another couple to come to our home. They're getting married in, in, in a few months, and so I was doing a premarital session with them, and so they just came over to our house, and we had a cup of coffee, sat out on the porch, and, and I did work with them. And one of the things that I do with couples when we're getting ready to do their wedding is what's called a genogram. A genogram is when you draw out a family tree, and then with the family tree, you draw lines that talk about the relationships because what we learn about what a family looks like is the family we grew up with. What we often learn about what a marriage looks like is the marriage we witnessed when we were growing up, good or bad. That's kind of what we tend to, to know. And, and, and so, you know, we, we kind of talk about that. And the other reason we do that is because I share with people, you are not marrying the branch. You're getting the whole family tree. And what's kind of fun is we, we talk about those relationships and we talk about, you know, in this marriage, what's the one thing you would like to have in your marriage, but in this marriage, what's the one thing you would not want in your marriage? And, and we, you know, we start learning how do we evaluate what's good in marriages and what we're looking for in a marriage. And then I scare the couple to death. I take his genogram that he's drawn out and we've discussed and I take hers that she's drawn out and we've discussed and I put them together and I go, this is what your children will draw someday. And they shiver all over. <laughs> but I was talking with one couple and they really got into it. And, and, and the bride, she started interviewing people in her family about their marriages and their relationships. And then she told the story about going to, to see grandma. Grandpa had died. And she's sitting there at grandma's house. They're at the little kitchen table. You know, the intimate table where the family sits. And they're having a cup of coffee and they're having a cookie and she starts talking to me, like, Grandma, tell me about your marriage. Tell me about you and Grandpa. You know, and of course, Grandma knew she was getting married, and that was the reason for the conversation. And, and Grandma looked at her and said, Well, honey, you know that I loved your Grandpa dearly, right? Yes. But if I had it to do over again, I would never have married him. <laughs> wow. And it just threw her. But it opened up this beautiful conversation about some things that had been happening in the family back in the day when you didn't talk about the things that were happening in the family. And all of a sudden she began to realize and she understood why grandma is who grandma is and why grandma does some of the things that grandma does. And, and all of a sudden it started making sense to her. You know, here's the thing. We can live with people all of our lives and never know them if we don't take the time to talk to them about the real stuff. You know, my, my, my mother grew up incredibly poor. When I hear her stories, it breaks my heart. And my mother's not perfect, and sometimes I can get frustrated. And, and I know that this is going to go on the Internet, so I do love her dearly. <laughs> but, you know, what happens is, is when you understand what somebody went through, you love them dearly. Because my mother grew up incredibly poor. 
Her father, when he came home from World War I, didn't handle things well. And, and so he abandoned my grandmother and he abandoned his kids. There were several kids, boys and girls in the family. And, and my mother's the baby of the family. And, and, and so, you know, she didn't have a lot of time with her dad. And, and he abandoned them. He left the home and, and he decided that alcohol was a good way to try to deal with life, which is a horrible way to get through life. And, and, and so it became just a totally dysfunctional situation. And and my grandmother was left to try to raise these kids on this farm without anybody to help her. And how they struggled so hard to make ends meet. And, and how my grandmother would make their clothes. And, and how you know, they raised their food or they didn't eat. I mean, they struggled through life incredibly poor. And, and, and my mother struggled with the fact that her father was in the community, but not part of her life. Not part of the family. He just walked away. And one day she told the story that, that, that there was a little girl came riding by on a brand new bicycle. And man, my mother thought that was the coolest thing she had ever seen. She had never seen a new bicycle like that. And she's talking to the little girl about, I love your bicycle and can I ride it? And, and, and they're looking at this bicycle. And, and then all of a sudden, that little girl says to my mom, your daddy bought it for me. My mother is 83 years old, but she tells that story like it's yesterday of admiring this, this little girl riding a brand new bicycle only to find out that the daddy that, that had abandoned you and your family and, and left you with nothing is the one who bought some other little girl, not his little girl, a new bicycle. So for my mother, Christmas means the world to her. I never really understood that. Nancy will tell you, my mom starts buying Christmas presents in January. It's the most amazing thing. Something goes on sale, my mom is there. Because if you try to take something back that you got in December that was bought in January, that's not easy to do. But Christmas means the world to her to the point that, that when my mother was dealing with a melanoma cancer and thought that she may not survive, she took Nancy and another sister-in-law, this is in the summertime, into the bedroom, shows them where the list is of who will get what at Christmas and where they are just in case she wasn't there. Because watching her kids get something new was something she never got to do when she was a little girl. And it still means the world to her today. I mean, we try to tell my mom, Mom, we're adults now. You don't need to buy us something. But at Christmas, she will. She will. Because she doesn't want any of us to see another kid riding a bicycle that she gave them instead of us. It's amazing when you learn people what you learn about people. You know, it's God places special people in our lives, not perfect people. I encourage you, spend some time really talking to the people that you love. You can spend your life with someone and never really get to know them. Some of my best memories with my dad were the trips I would take him to get his treatments. Because in a car at 55, 
you can talk. And we shared stories. I heard stories about who he is. And, and talking to my mom, it's so important. I shared in um, my newsletter article that you may have read that some of the best advice I was ever given was spend your time with the people who will cry at your funeral. Good advice. Spend your time with the people who will cry at your funeral. Mary cried at Jesus' funeral. But they had spent a life together and adored each other. When our daughter was little, we used to do what we called daddy dates. I'd pick her up from preschool, Kingswood, United Methodist Church, just above Winston-Salem, and if we turned right, that meant we were going into town, and, and if I turned left, we were going home. So if I turned right, she would sometimes, you know, with that little blonde-headed ponytail pulled back and those little blue eyes, she'd look over and go, is this a daddy date? i go, yeah, this is a daddy date. We'd go get us something to eat, and Nancy and I both have tried to have one-on-one -on -one time with both of our kids. I just think that that's kind of important to do. And, and, and just a couple weeks ago, Ashley sent me a text, and it was a picture that Chick-fil-A was promoting daddy dates, and it was a picture of a dad and a little girl. And she goes, am I too old for this? <laughs> and I replied back, you're never too old for this. To spend your time with the people who cry at your funeral is one of the best things that you could ever possibly do. To be able to share... After my dad died, I um, started, you know, on Thursday nights, I would, I would call my mom and check and see how things were going. And one of the reasons is, is that I, years ago, had to start blocking off on my calendar, which tonight will be family night, because if I didn't block it off, then what you would realize is you were doing something Sunday night. You know, Sunday nights, we typically have things going on. Monday night, we typically have meetings of some kind. Tuesday nights, I'll do counseling or work with somebody. Wednesday nights, I tend to teach. And so Thursday night is a night that I tend to block off and, and, and say this is family time. And so sometimes, you know, once in a while, I'll, I'll break it. But, but periodically, you know, if somebody goes, how about Thursday night? I'll go, I can't do Thursday night because I have a prior commitment. It is okay for your family to be your prior commitment because your family is your prior commitment. It's okay. And, and so I'll, you know, I block off Thursday nights and, and, and I typically then will, will try to go home and, and you know, Nancy and I will often go grab something to eat or something on Thursday night. So I call my mom and I would talk to her and I go, you know, so what are you doing? You know, nothing. Well, what, you have any plans for tonight? Well, no. Well, Nancy and I are going to grab something to eat if you would like to go with us. You know, we'd love to have you join us. And she would meet us and we would have dinner together. And what I didn't realize, you do something two or three times, it becomes the system. And so, you know, I didn't realize that until I was talking to my sister one day about something, you know, with mom or the house or whatever. And she goes, yeah, I understand, you know, you and Nancy do dinner with mom on Thursday nights. I was like, so I told Nancy, I said, you know, we, I think we've got a thing. I think this is our new, our new thing. And, and we began talking about that, you know, and, and, and my mother that I found out, you know, there was a, a friend of the family's who was coming in and mom hadn't seen him in months. And it was going to be on a Thursday night, and it invited Mom out to dinner. And, and she goes, I'm not sure I can. Nancy and Terry normally call me on Thursday nights, and if they do, I'll go out with them instead. And so when I'm talking to Mom, she's telling me the story. I went, Mom, when's the last time you've seen these people? What was at your dad's funeral? I said, Mom, go to dinner with them. She goes, well, if I do, I mean, will we ever do this again? And I said, no. If you ever go out to dinner with somebody else, I'm done. You know, I'm never coming back. Of course we'll do it again. But Nancy and I talked about it. Thursday nights, 
as often than I do. We will call because if I have something going on on a Thursday night, like Holy Thursday, I still call and go, you know I've got like Holy Thursday tonight, right? But spending time with the people who will cry at your funeral or whose funeral you will cry is important. And Mary was crying at Jesus' funeral and he made eye contact. And made sure she was taken care of. God puts special people in our lives. Not perfect people. We get frustrated with our families because we're looking for perfect people. But God didn't promise I'll give you perfect people. But special people. And life is precious. So thank God for those people that God has placed in your lives. Spend time with those that you can. And thank God for the gift of family. When Jesus said, Mom, John will take care of you. John, take care of Mom. What he really said was, I love you, Mom. 